0: Well, good morning, and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, the fastest way to find 1 Peter is to start at the end of the Bible in Revelation, page back about half a dozen pages, and you'll find the book of 1 Peter. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Bowder. I'm the worship director here at Grace Bible Church. This is not the location I normally end up at at this point in the service, but... It is a great privilege to open the word with you this morning. As we consider today the the role of worship in the local church, let's read this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, we come to your word this morning with open hearts, open minds. We're ready to be fed. We're ready to receive nourishment. I pray that by your help I would preach better than I know how. And give grace to these gracious people who have to listen to me. And may we leave this text this morning knowing and loving you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Proclaiming the Excellencies of God, because that phrase is such a clear destination for this whole passage. And it reveals... That worship, as we'll see, is the purpose of the local church. And so I propose to go through this passage starting in verse 1, but keeping verse 9 in mind. That is, keeping proclaiming the excellencies of God in mind as the goal. Because as Peter builds his way toward worship explicitly, he's also implicitly telling us what must first be the case in order for worship to happen. There are five points in this sermon which I'll identify as we go in case you're a note-taker. You don't have to be. I'll summarize them at the end as well. Peter begins this passage by comparing the church to a family. In this family, God is the Father. And believers are the little babies. They're the newborns who need nourishment in order to grow up. In fact, Peter has been employing this word picture of Believers as children in God's family for some time, even in chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's needs. Verse 23. You've been born again born into a new family, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And of course, Peter is not the first one to use these analogies of believers as children and God as father and regeneration as a kind of new birth. These are analogies taken from the Gospels, taken from Jesus himself. Nevertheless, Peter is using them here, and by the time we get to our text, chapter 2, verse 1, the theme of being God's children is Well-established, and the purpose of this analogy is to show that by grace through faith, we've been transformed. Through conversion, we've been given a new nature. That's what it means to be born again. We've been made into a new man. Our souls are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Becoming a child of God is the starting point of our Christian life. And being a child of God is therefore a prerequisite for worship. Now this is implicit in the text, I think, but it's there. True worship, and this is point one if you're a note taker, true worship is an activity of the redeemed. True worship is an activity of the redeemed. Only the regenerate, only believers truly worship. Our worship may be observed by unbelievers, and we hope that it is. All are welcome to our services. We pray that lost men and women and boys and girls would come through those doors and hear the preaching of the word and believe. We turn no one away from being present, and yet those who are not children of God cannot and will not truly worship him as their father. This is why... We limit or restrict leadership in our public worship to those who have made a profession of faith. Generally speaking, sometimes with the exception of children, the people on the platform on Sunday morning have articulated faith in Christ. In most big mainline churches and megachurches, it's the norm now to treat musicians simply as hires, simply as employees. You just hire the best you can get regardless of their faith. When I was in grad school at the U of M, most of my colleagues who were in school with me, about my age, most of them were atheists. Shocker, in an arts program at the U of M. And most of them had church jobs, sometimes as music directors at churches. Imagine the irony of leading people in expressing things which you yourself doubt or disbelieve or openly despise. This leads us to another prerequisite for worship that I think is implicit in this text, and it's that this is point two, true worship is sincere. True worship is sincere. It shouldn't be hypocritical. It shouldn't be an act. Peter is still using this analogy of believers as the little children of God, using this analogy of the family. Children should look like their father, If our father is holy and pure, we should strive toward holiness and purity too. We should conform our behavior to look like our father, not because it's an act, not because it's a show, but because we have new identity in him. And so Peter pleads in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And instead, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Worship does not begin on our lips. It doesn't begin in our voices. Worship begins in our hearts. You can have the most beautiful voice in the world, but if your heart is turned away from God, if your hidden affections are cold toward him, then you are not worshiping. You see, worship is fundamentally a disposition of the heart to treasure God in reverence and joy. And without that basis we run the risk of becoming like the hypocrites in Matthew 5. Remember these? The people Jesus talks about who stand on the street corner to pray publicly, and they do it for the praise of men. But inside, they're spiritually dead. Now here's the rub. We know that none of us have perfectly ordered affections. All of us experience at one time or another some disconnect between how we know we ought to be feeling during worship and how we actually feel during worship. Maybe we're distracted. Maybe you don't like the songs. Maybe the PowerPoint restarts mid-service. Maybe it's the light that goes on and off. Maybe Josh screws up the lyrics again. Maybe it's just the difficult events in your life that overshadow the experience on Sunday morning. Maybe your heart just feels out of tune. Does your heart ever feel out of tune? All of us experience this. This is why we sing in a prayer to God, tune my heart. To sing thy grace. So how do we tune our hearts? What's the medicine that we need for this? Well, look at verse 2. Like newborn babes, that's us, immature, babies, weak, helpless, distracted, not feeling as we should. We're just children. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What is the pure spiritual milk. Well, it's the word of God that Peter just described at the end of chapter one. It's the word of the Lord through which we were born again in 123. It's the word of the Lord that endures forever in 125. It's the revelation of God in scripture. The Bible is our food. It's by eating and drinking the Bible that we grow up out of spiritual childhood and into spiritual manhood. It's therefore essential that our corporate worship be saturated with the Bible. So here's point three. True worship is filled with scripture. True worship is filled with scripture. We are to sing the Bible. Pray the Bible. Preach the Bible. Contemplate the Bible. This is why Jacob is so avidly committed to what we call sequential expositional preaching, preaching from the word. It's why every week we we read scripture together and our elders give us a mini-sermon exhorting us from that passage like David did today from a very tricky passage in James. It's why we close our services by reading our benediction aloud from the Psalms. And our songs and hymns too develop and adorn biblical truth. I challenge you as you read through the Bible in your own devotions, Just take note of how many times you run across a phrase or an analogy that you thought was original to a hymn or a song, but it's actually taken straight from the Bible. And it turns out that this is the solution for those times when you don't feel like worshiping. The answer is receive the word that's being fed to you. Sing the hymns with your brothers and sisters around you. Listen to the sermon Meditate on God's truth. That's not hypocrisy. It's not pretending. It's not that you're trying to show off for those around you. You're not the Pharisee on the street corner trying to impress men in that situation. You're the newborn who needs nourishment. And over time, you will gradually develop all the refined senses necessary to appreciate a feast. Worship that is based in the word will both feed you, and form your capacity for more and deeper worship. In other words, worship isn't just a matter of expressing yourself the way you want to or of feeling a certain emotion. It's a matter of being formed. I commend to you the work of Scott Aniel from Religious Affections Ministry. Scott Aniel, A-N-I-O-L. He is a professor of theology of worship down at Southwestern Seminary, and he's a friend of mine, and he's done work uh, great work in developing this idea of worship as formation corporate worship centered on the word of god will form your knowledge and your affections and in so doing it will build up your faith i think that this is one of the reasons why we have been hesitant as a new church to implement programs that take children out of our corporate worship I think it's because we want even the little children to see what formative worship looks like. Not just the music, but the preaching and the reading of the word and communion. To taste and see that the Lord is good, as Peter says in verse 3. To experience with us the activity of being fed by the word. Now, up to this point, Peter has been using the analogy of God's family in which we are the children. But now, in verse 4, he introduces a new analogy. This one's architectural. Believers, he says, are like living stones. They're rejected by men, but they're chosen and precious in the sight of God. And these stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Each Individual Christian is a brick in this structure. And God has already laid the cornerstone, as we see in this quote from Isaiah 28. That's who he's quoting from. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This cornerstone is Jesus. And Peter says this is an honor for those that believe, verse 7. In other words, it's an honor both to be a living stone in the house that God is building and... It's an honor to be grounded on such a worthy foundation, the cornerstone that is the Lord Jesus. Of course, to unbelievers, this cornerstone is to be rejected. It's a stumbling block. It's an offense. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. You see, unbelievers look at the church with cynicism and contempt. They view the foundation of Jesus Christ as a strange and unworthy basis for community. They see churches as weird clubs. People get together for all sorts of reasons. You can get together to play board games. You get together to do yoga. Well, some people get together because they think Jesus is Lord. And it's all fine and good in a tolerant country like ours, but as soon as the Local church appears to pose an inconvenience to the rest of society. As soon as meeting consistently as a church poses a perceived health and safety risk, then the world will seek to shut it all down. We're seeing this play out. We know all too well over North America. That same rock that is our foundation is a stumbling block and an offense to the world. And this is because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But if we are living stones being built up together, what kind of building is it? Look again at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The building that Peter is describing here is a temple. He's telling us that the church is the temple of God. Now, what's the significance of the temple? What would Peter's Jewish audience have immediately thought of when they heard this analogy? They'd think of the temple in Jerusalem, which had been the dwelling place of God. Remember, God calls Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his holy people, And the holiest city in all of Israel is Jerusalem. And the holiest place in all of Jerusalem is the temple. And at the center of the temple was its holiest room, which was a bare cube of space that the Jews called the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies. With walls of stone on three sides and a thick curtain on the fourth, which separated the people from God, because it was there above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant that God's presence dwelt. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter that room to offer intercession on behalf of the people. The temple was the absolute center. Of Jewish worship. It was the heart of religious celebration and religious mourning. It was the ultimate destination of pilgrimage. It was the place for God's people to come to pray, to sacrifice, and to worship. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that that earthly temple, that physical temple, was just a copy, it's just a shadow, it's just a picture of a heavenly temple. God's real dwelling in the heavens. Now we know less about this heavenly temple than we do about the earthly one, but we do know a little bit. And so we're gonna go on two detours here from First Peter in order to learn more about the heavenly temple. And the first detour is to Isaiah chapter six. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter six. Keep a finger in First Peter maybe, but turn to Isaiah six. Y'all knew we were headed here in a sermon on worship, right? Isaiah six is a likely destination. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, let me read for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each seraph had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraph called to another seraph and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. It's shaking at the voice of the seraph. The Lord hasn't even said anything yet. And the house was filled with smoke. The heavenly temple is a place of worship. It's a place where God sits on his high throne and around him his creatures adore him. These seraphim are not angels. Angels are messengers. Angels have places to be and things to do. They, have, they go on quests. They deliver news to people. But the seraphim stay in one place. They were created simply to be in the presence of God, to behold him and to worship him. Now, I want you to keep the scene from Isaiah 6 in your mind. So you have the throne, you have the temple, you have the seraphim, and you have the worship. And now, flip forward to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 4. Go to Revelation chapter 4, where the Apostle John has a vision of the heavenly temple. This is 900 years after Isaiah's vision. Revelation chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse 2. John says, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are both reddish gemstones that are veined through kind of like marble. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne, verse 4, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is the glassy sea that we just sang about. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are, present tense, four living Creatures. up until this point everything's been past tense because john is just telling us the vision that he had he's relating the vision but when he gets to the seraphim he says they are there present tense four living creatures the first living creature verse seven like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings yep are full of eyes all around and within, and and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Keep reading. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. What do you do in the temple of God? You worship. And here at long last is point number four. True worship has God as its object. You say, well that's obvious. It's a tautology. Of course, true worship has God as its object. Well, notice how the worship of the seraphim, both in Isaiah and in Revelation, is voiced in the third person. Their worship is facing outward toward God. It's declarative. They're not facing inward toward themselves. The seraphim are not talking about their feelings Or their emotional experiences. They're not wrapped up in their own subjective conceits. They're objectively proclaiming the excellencies of God. They are singing hymns. We don't know if they're singing. I think they're singing because later in Revelation it says they sang a new song. Implying. But at least we know they're saying hymns. That are oriented not on themselves. But on the beauty and majesty and purity and holiness of the one seated on the throne. Now I want to be clear. We're not the seraphim. We were not created simply to behold God directly in his temple and worship him unceasingly. We were created to live on the earth as embodied souls. It's not wrong for us to sing songs of testimony that focus on what God has done for us. That's not wrong. The New Testament tells us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some of our sweetest spiritual songs are about how God has saved and redeemed us as individuals. Often these songs are voiced in the first person singular. That's okay. In fact, probably the most famous Christian song ever written it is not a hymn, technically speaking, it's a song of testimony. Amazing grace! How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me! I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. And when we sing that, we say, amen, yes, with John Newton, yes, we've been through the same experience. We too were once blind, but now we can see. Still, what the seraphim are doing in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 is something slightly different. What they're saying, or possibly singing, is more like a hymn. They're not giving testimony to what God has done for them. They're proclaiming who God is, his attributes, his holiness, his power, His eternity, his worthiness. This kind of worship that places all the attention on God and none at all on ourselves may strike us as strange. It's certainly out of step with the values of the world. In our age, for example, the worldly emphasis is clearly on the self. The whole seeker movement in the modern church proceeds from the premise that worship should be an attractive experience for anyone coming through the doors. It treats worship more as a product and people not so much as a congregation but as an audience, as consumers who expect to be swept along by an uplifting swell of emotion which crests in the second to last song and then it recedes into a soothing feeling of catharsis and well-being and then you're ready for the five to seven minute sermon. Don't get me wrong, this formula for delivering emotional experiences works incredibly well. It's highly effective. It's done everywhere. The problem is that this trains people to equate worship with an emotional experience. They come to worship aware, in some way, that this service has been designed for them. That they are, in some respect, the center of what is about to happen. There's one popular worship song that goes like this. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Here I am. I have arrived. We can worship now. It's like, no. You know, the songwriter, I wish him well. He's got a good ear for music. But I can't think of a more tone-deaf thing to say for a Christian entering the temple of God. Or what about this one? I got a couple dents in my fender, got a couple of rips in my jeans, try to fit the pieces together, but perfection's my enemy. And on my own, I'm so clumsy, but on your shoulders, God, on your shoulders, I can see I'm free to be me. Well, that's the perfect anthem for the spirit of the age. And it's the kind of thing that will draw an audience, no doubt. But Christian, hear me. There is only one audience of worship. And he has not left us free to be ourselves. He has called us and transferred us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us to be living stones built into the holy of holies, witnesses to his presence in the temple of the local church. We should be pierced through by his splendor and humbled in reverence and wonder, not deluded by an image of ourselves. Now Peter's going to expand the metaphor once again, so turn back to our text in 1 Peter 2. Expanding the metaphor, not only are we living stones built together into the walls of the temple, but we're also the priests that serve in the temple. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the excellencies of God, that phrase is the destination toward which all of our passage this morning has been leading. Why are we born again into God's family? Why are are we to be sincere and not hypocritical? Why are we to find nourishment in the word of God? Why are we built up as living stones into a spiritual house? Why are we called out of the world to be royal priests and a holy nation and God's own people? Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So point five now. True worship is proclamation. True worship is proclamation. We saw earlier, I think it was point two, that worship has to be sincere, right? Worship is a disposition of the heart to treasure and revere God. And if you don't have that internal disposition, then the most beautiful external expressions are fake and hollow and not true worship. But now we have the flip side, see? While it is true that we may sometimes worship God silently in the spirit, that is true. Nevertheless, when we gather on Sunday mornings for corporate worship as the local body. We're commanded to give voice to what we feel in our hearts. We're commanded to express, to use words and music as vehicles to convey truth. In other words, we're commanded to proclaim. And we are to proclaim together, side by side, like stones supporting each other in a wall. Now, the fact that true worship is proclamation suggests three implications. So you thought we were done because that was point five. But now here's three subpoints, okay? I'll go quickly through these. Three implications of this number one, our worship must be accessible to the congregation. At our church, we, we want to remove any barriers that might prevent the congregation from participating fully. We do not assume that everyone in our church listens to the same radio stations during the week or grew up with the same hymnals. We want our worship to be clear enough and simple enough to be achievable for everyone. One of the most frustrating experiences a person can have in church is to be confronted with a song whose melody they've never heard in a key and with a range that's not suited for the average voice, with a rhythm that changes from verse to verse, with a bridge that's in a different time signature than the rest of the song, with vocal embellishments that were never intended for a congregation. They were intended for a trained soloist recording a single. Friends, you may very well be moved to worship when you hear that song on the radio, but in the context of corporate worship, that kind of thing can lock people out of participation. So at our church, we stress, accessibility, so that all may proclaim together. The second implication, proclaiming the excellencies of God, means that we have to think about not only what we are proclaiming, the content, but how we are proclaiming it. That is the form of proclamation. What do these terms mean? By content, we just mean the surface meaning, the words. This is clear, right? This one's an easy one. It's like, you want the, thing, the words that you're saying in worship to be true. You want them to be verified by scripture and clearly expressed, not confusing. By form, we mean how is that content organized and delivered? How is it packaged? What's the mode or tone or medium in play? There would be something wrong if all of our worship songs were in limerick form. Even if all the words were factually correct, the form in which they were organized would undercut their truth. Why? Because the limerick form is inherently trivial, and it would therefore be mismatched to the words, which are not inherently trivial. There would be something wrong if all of our worship was in the style of marching band music, or polka music, or honky-tonk piano, or lullabies, It's not because any of those forms are inherently wrong in themselves. Who would say that lullabies are wrong? It's because those forms were created to do some things and not do other things. This is common sense. It's right for us, therefore, to hesitate before forcing those forms into corporate worship. To acknowledge that some forms may very well be enjoyed outside of church while being unsuited for worship inside the church. This isn't hypocrisy. It's not a man-made standard. It's not a double standard. It's understanding context. It's knowing that you can wear shorts to a barbecue, but you wear a suit to the State of the Union. Now look, I know that it's precisely at this issue where disagreements arise. And I want you to know that I am so grateful that this body has shown so much graciousness and patience as we have for the last year now, started to chart a course for our worship at Grace. And it's not a perfect course. And it's not an unchanging fixed course. It's going to change over times as we learn and as we grow. But thank the Lord that our church has been marked by unity and goodwill on an issue that we, we all know this thing can erupt and divide. We want to think through these things very carefully, very responsibly. We're not in any hurry to adopt whatever new forms are currently in vogue. So when some company tells us, as I saw an advertisement recently, that uh, to, uh, to be a worship innovator, right, to take your worship to the next level, you really need this new technology. It's like you see that and uh, I'm skeptical, right? And I think I speak for the elders. We're like, yeah, we're not just going to throw our money at you and be like, yeah, we, we need that. Well, let's think about it. We're skeptical, when someone tells us that the forms used in advertisement and entertainment can be used equally well in worship by simply substituting the surface content, we hesitate. We want to proclaim God's excellencies rightly. We don't want to jeopardize such a weighty responsibility in a rush toward relevance. And third, finally, the third implication of worship as proclamation is that we proclaim God's excellency by marveling at the gospel. Look at the end of verse 9. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. God has chosen to reveal his excellency to us primarily through the salvation purchased by Jesus Christ. If we were to go back to Revelation and continue reading John's vision, we would see that the next thing that happens after Revelation 4, in Revelation 5, the Lamb enters the throne room of God. And as the Lamb takes the scroll, which he alone is worthy to unseal, the elders and the seraphim fall down, and they sing that new song. And the new song goes like this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Do you hear how that language in the worship in Revelation echoes what Peter is saying about us being a kingdom of priests in 1 Peter 2? Our worship should be motivated and centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. So can I sum up these five points? Number one was true worship is an activity of the redeemed. You have to be a child of God in order to worship him as father. Number two, true worship is sincere. Worship begins when you treasure God in your heart. It's not immediately an external thing. Number three, true worship is filled with scripture. We pray the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible. Number four, True worship has God as its object. It's not not about how we feel. It's about who God is. And number five, true worship is proclamation. We attest to God's excellency in proclaiming the gospel in content and in form. I mentioned John Newton's amazing grace earlier in the sermon. I want to close today By reading just a couple stanzas, two very short stanzas, from another hymn that John Newton wrote. This one is called How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. It'll be projected on the screen as I read. Newton says, O Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. How weak the effort of my heart, how cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Father, we pray that you give us the eyes to see your son as we ought. Give us the ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts that heed your grace. And give us tongues to praise in this church and in your church across the globe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.